Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, the UN George Floyd Mechanism, Local to Global Human Rights Advocacy on Racial Justice and Law Enforcement, discusses the new UN expert mechanism established in 2021 to advance systemic change for racial justice and equality in the context of law enforcement globally. The guest expert panelists will discuss the origins and mandate of this unique body and its place in history of anti-racism struggles at the UN. The expert panelists for this event are Salima Hankins, the director of the UN Anti-Racism Coalition. Judge Lajun Thomas Lang, retired from the Minnesota 4th Judicial District Court. Elena Castillo Yemenez, the Weisbrot Fellow with the Human Rights Center. Tamara Hill, the Policy Director with the Minnesota Justice Research Center. And Professor Fanula Niolane, the Faculty Director of the Human Rights Center. This event was part of the Minnesota Law Human Rights Center Day. It was recorded on April 13, 2023. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Welcome, everyone. Um, Welcome to the University of Minnesota Law School if you're visiting. Welcome students if you're just dropping in uh, uh, from classes. And most particularly, welcome to all the alums who are here for Alumni Week joining us in person. So uh, we're here for what I think we can happily call Human Rights Day during Alumni Week at the University of Minnesota Law School. I'm Fanula Nielon. I'm the faculty director uh, of the Human Rights Center. And we're here to celebrate many things. Um, one of the things we're celebrating is this is the very first, one of the very first law school human rights centers in the United States with a long and distinguished history of advancing human rights nationally and internationally. This afternoon and in all the events that we are offering today, we are affirming the work um, and the leadership of the Human Rights Center by our founder, our intellectual leader, and our friend, David Weisbrod, who passed away in November of 2021. So it's a really nice celebration of many things, but particularly to remember David's legacy and to think about and reflect on the work going forward. Our focus this afternoon is on issues of racial justice, of inequality, of human rights, and these issues were of particular importance to David. In the late 1980s, David was working with the Black Law Students Association here at the law school on several strategies to address systemic racism in the United States within the UN system. And those of you who want to go look that up and read about it, you'll find it in his 1990 casebook and on, in a law review article he wrote in 1997. And I particularly want to acknowledge one of our former our alumni, um, Arthur McCoy, in this regard, who worked with David on what was one of the very first, um, uh, uh, one of the very first communications to the UN system about issues of structural racism, particularly in the state in the, uh, of Minnesota. Um, while we acknowledge, David, I also want to recognize that there are many faculty who've worked on issues of racial justice at the university for a long time. And I particularly want to recognize Dr. Rose Brewer and Dr. Sam Myers. And I think one or both of them may be with us uh, for this afternoon. Um, we're sharing the current work of the Human Rights Center with you in part because I think it's a good way, the best way for us to honor David's memory and to take the commitments and the values that he had forward and make them meaningful into the future. So this afternoon, with that in mind, I'm going to start by welcoming us to this very specific session, which is on the new groundbreaking UN expert mechanism. Uh, this mechanism was established in 2021 to advance and address systematic change, quote, for racial justice and equality in the context of law enforcement globally. Um, the mechanism came about as a result of a number of things. One was a High Commissioner's report on racial justice and equality. 
and that agenda produced a four-point four agenda to end systemic racism and human rights violations by law enforcement agencies perpetrated against Africans and people of African descent. And as we are all, I think, painfully aware in this city, this state was also pivotal to the creation story of this mechanism, um, as it was precisely the brutal murder of George Floyd on a sidewalk at the intersection of East 38 and Chicago Af uh, Avenue by police officer Derek Chauvin that gave rise to a worldwide call for an end to systemic racism, particularly in policing. So UN work has been at the heart of what the Human Rights Center and what David did for many, many decades. Um, and um, the UN expert mechanism will be making its first official country visit to the United States in the weeks ahead and will be in May, here in Minneapolis in May, May 2nd, 2023. Um, and one of the things to note about this mechanism, it's not just unusual to have this kind of mechanism. We're going to talk about it. It's an unusual mechanism in its structure and its function. But it's also really unique that it has been applied to a P5, a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. So our guests who are joining us are going to talk about the origins of the mandate, the uniqueness of this body, its place in the history of anti-racism struggles at the UN, and we also are going to use this opportunity as we, as we take this afternoon to think about human rights. Uh, we're going to consider the way in which this visit, the, the visit to the Twin Cities by this mechanism, presents a real opportunity for racial justice issues and efforts in the city. Um, and so we're going to have two of our speakers introduce the mechanism. So we're going to start actually with a video, which is um, going to be, uh, we're going to have um, a, a video which will introduce the first of our speakers, um, Salima, who uh, cannot be with us in person, um, Salima Hankins, who's the executive director of the UN Anti-Racism Coalition. And she's sent us a recorded video presentation. And this coalition is the main coalition of organizations supporting the work of the UN mechanism. So it's a variety of different organizations. Um, and Salima is a highly experienced advocate and one of the leading voices calling for a UN response in the wake of the killing of Joy George Floyd. So she's been really generous in supporting organizations right here in the Twin Cities to engage with the mechanism and really ensure that they come here, which was not a given. It took the work of local organizations to make sure that this mechanism would come here. So we're going to open up with her. Um, uh, we have a short version of her recorded remarks for this, but we have a fuller video that we're going to put on the Human Rights Center website. Um, so let's start, if we can, with the video. Thanks, Abby, for doing that. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Salima Hankins. I'm an attorney and the director of the UN Anti-Racism Coalition. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the coalition and our work with the new UN mechanism. Our coalition is an, uh, is an international coalition that was created and led by Africans and people of African descent. It addresses the ongoing oppression and killing of Black people around the world due to global anti-Blackness and the histories of colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. Um, UNARC was instrumental in the creation of the new mechanism IMLR, which is the United Nations um, expert mechanism to advance racial justice and equality in law enforcement. It's a, that's a mouthful. After the killing of George Floyd, obviously, as everyone knows, it really sent shockwaves around the world. Um, my organization, along with the ACLU, who was um, a member of our coalition, our organization at the time, so the ACLU, um, Dr. Gay McDougal, the Mothers Against Police Brutality, there were quite a few organizations. We got together and decided to craft a letter asking for um, a special session because what we wanted was a commission, an international commission of inquiry. We wanted them to treat this, um, this, this case, and not just the case, the situation of, of Black people in the U.S. Um, we wanted them to treat it as similarly 
in a, in a similar way that they treat um, other human rights emergencies around the world. So this was a pretty high bar. We weren't sure whether we would get um, support, but we got a lot of support from the families of people killed by, by police and also uh, George Floyd's brother, Philonis Floyd, um, actually opened the session when we did actually wind up getting them to do something similar to a special session, which was an urgent debate. Um, obviously, that was pretty disappointing because in the end, we did not get an investigation. But what we did get was a report, a, a, a scathing report from, from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And then as a, as a you know, unofficial coalition, we decided to hold strategy sessions with a bunch of different organizations and groups around the world. Also, I want to say that the Black Coalition for Human Rights based in Brazil, and they have 155 um, member organizations, Black-led organizations that are working on um, all types of issues related to the oppression of Black people in Brazil. They were very active members of the um, um, UN anti-racism coalition. So it truly is an international coalition. Um, so as a since we didn't get what we wanted in terms of, we got like a watered down resolution, we pushed for the creation of a new mechanism. And we said like the existing mechanisms, we had at the time, um, the working group of experts on people of African descent. At that time, we didn't quite have the permanent, we didn't have the permanent forum yes, yet, but um, there were, you know, the precursors to the permanent form, and we knew that was coming down the, the pipe. But we we wanted something that was kind of like a special procedure that had m like much more affor affirmative power. And obviously, we wanted a commission of inquiry because we wanted the UN to come in and actually do an investigation, um, and not just to look at the case of George Floyd, but other cases, and then also the response. Um, once uh, uh, to protesters who were pre protesting racial justice. Um, so as a result, the long process of strategy sessions and us pushing and working closely with the Human Rights Council and with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, what we did wind up was getting Resolution 4721, which created the George Floyd Resolution. Um, and basically, the resolution um, created this new mechanism. Um, one of the things that we really pushed for was to make sure that this mechanism included the legacies of colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade, because, you know, it, it was important for us to, to include the systemic piece so that we weren't just kind of chasing case after case after case. And we really looked at this, the root causes um, to, you know, disabuse us ourselves of this notion that it's a bad apple, but that this is a systemic issue. And we wanted this particular mechanism to take into account the systemic issues. Obviously, now three years after um, advocates pushed for this, something to be done after the killing of George Floyd and along with victims' families, um, Imler announced in mid-January that it was going to conduct a country visit in the United States from April 24th to May 5th. We submitted um, the list of cities that, um, we, we submitted a list of cities that people had asked Emler uh, to go, and we really pushed for Minneapolis too because we understood how important that was. So the, in the end, they decided to go to to DC as a kickoff point, not necessarily to meet with a lot of um, civil society in DC. They're going to Atlanta, they're going to Los Angeles, then Chicago, then they'll be in Minneapolis on May second. Unfortunately, they're only doing one day in Minneapolis, but we hope that we can make it a uh, um, and a really like impactful visit and then they're going to New York City and then back to DC to do a big press conference and then off they go back to their home countries. After a bunch of conversations with Imla, we realized because of their funding limitations and also their just lack of reach that they were really going to have a lot of difficulty um, planning a really effective um, engagement with civil society. So what we did was, as I said, we have decided that we will coordinate the U.S. civil society side. So make sure that we have meetings with Imler, 
that centers the, uh, the experiences of people most impacted by human rights violations, that centers victims and their families. So we'll have some meetings that are just will just be um, victims, families, and, and people who have who are still living, who have experienced um, um, you know, harm or human rights violations at the hands of police. And then we'll have civil society meetings at each um, in each city. Um, we meet with them now every week to, to really talk about where they are in terms of meeting with, um, with uh, politicians. The main thing for us too is for them to make sure that they get access to detention facilities, including, um, uh, I think they're trying to visit Rikers in New York. They wanted to visit Angola in New Orleans, I mean, in uh, Louisiana, but it doesn't look like they'll be able to do that. But some people who were, um, were um, incarcerated in Angola will be going to Atlanta for um, participation. So anyway, that is uh, Imler and um, our work. If you have any questions, please feel free to let me know. For me, this feels really impactful because, you know, I've been doing this human rights work for a while, particularly on the side of really trying to connect um, uh, communities with a human rights framework and really to see that this is not the end all be all, not for this to be uh, the savior or not for this to be like, not even really to, to, to depend on implementation, but to be able to use this as a tool, as a narrative tool to say, okay, we do have the moral high ground here. The, we have support around the world and the US is the outlier, right? And so it's really important for us to to be able to use this in that way. And different people are using it differently in their work. And it's up to us to really make sure that we provide the opportunity for people to have that direct access. So that's what we're doing. Anyway, thank you so much for your time and good luck. Thanks to Salima. I'm going to invite Judge La Jun Lang to sit in the center. We didn't want her to be uh, beamed on, um, uh, re retired, but one of our most distinguished alumni who's joining us this afternoon. And our, um, our official moderator is still in court, so um, he is going to try to make his way, um, Aman is going to try to make his way here um, before the end of the session. But until his arrival, I will be moderating us. And so we have a really interesting, distinguished panel who are going to really probe this mechanism with us. And um, let me next go to um, Alina Castillo-Diemenez. Um, uh, uh, Lina is a feminist lawyer. Good to have, I think, four feminist lawyers sitting at the top of the room today, um, and a human rights strategist. And I think one of the things that's really important for us at the Human Rights Center is that she's been affiliated with the center in different capacities starting in 2017. But she's currently the Wise Broad Human Rights Fellow, uh, leading the center's work supporting advocacies and strategies related to this UN mechanism. So for the alums in the room who have supported the Wise Broad Fund, I really want to thank Thank you, so that you can see where the support that you gives, uh, give us go into ensuring the legacy of David's work continues and is seen in the active pathways and career pathways that people uh, take and are given the opportunity to take through the centre. And so Alina has a critical role uh, and played a critical role in calling for the UN to visit Minneapolis and support the Twin Cities leadership and the groups in the Twin Cities, families in particular, but also the communities who have sought to make sure that what happened in the city is visible to uh, the UN system. And as UN Special Rapporteur myself, I know that often it's not obvious from far away when you're visiting a country where you should be. And you depend on the interlocutors of vo uh, and voices from local spaces telling you why you should come, helping you come, and ensuring that when you get here, you get to talk to the people who are most affected by the human rights violations that have occurred. So, Alina, over to you. Hi, can you all hear me? Yes, I just wanted to make sure this was working. Hi, hi, everybody, and thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It really is a pleasure being back here with you all, kind of coming back to a place that is somehow an academic and legal home in a way, so it's really a privilege to be here with you all and kind of kickstart a conversation. I think we're only going to get to scratch a little bit of the surface of like 
what the visit of this mechanism means and what is its potential. And from my side, I would like to add a couple of points to this analysis from the lens of the international human rights law framework, right? And kind of take a step back and complement some of the things that Salima eloquently explained in, in her intervention. So I think to understand a little bit of how this mechanism can operate within the UN system, it's important, I think, to highlight again that what advocates at the time in the summer of 2020 requested at that urgent debate in the Human Rights Council was a commission of inquiry. It was an international probe to look specifically into incidents or facts that occur in the United States in the context of racism and law enforcement. So taking the murder of George Floyd as a point of inflex, but not necessarily as the only one, as we all know is not the only person of African descent that has lost their life or endured violence at the hands of law enforcement because of systemic racism. However, what we got, and by we I mean like everybody in, in the Americas and in other parts of the world that believe in the power of human rights to transform our realities uh, was on the one hand um, the expert mechanism and previously before that a report, a very thorough report I would say from the office of the high commissioner looking into these practices. Now I think it's worth mentioning that other voices within the UN system joined this call from the advocates. I mean the special rapporteur on racism and other special procedures when the holders also called for the establishment or, and this is interesting because in this, from this point of view, it was both a thematic commission and a country-specific commission. And I'm gonna quote a part of this statement because I think it speaks a lot to what was actually the end goal here. And I'm gonna open up the quote with the necessary authority to investigate systemic racism in law enforcement in the United States, end of quote. This was shortly before the urgent debate in 2020 started. Now, for those of you that perhaps um, may not be acquainted with human rights law, because I understand that we are, we have many lawyers here that are practicing other areas. But you have definitely heard about the Human Rights Council, which is the UN body to which this request was presented. And this is an intergovernmental body that sits within the United Nations system. It's composed by 47 states. And in part because of this nature, and in part because decisions of this body are arrived to by consensus or votes of the states. Some might say that it's a very political body. So the nature of the debates and the conversations that happen in the Human Rights Council, although they're rooted in international human rights law, some lawyers and activists, and I will say I'm included in there, might, might say that it can take political, political notes. And it's very interesting to see the dynamics, right? So I think that in a way that also had an influence in what was that we actually received on the other side of the debate. However, I think still, and Salima reinforced it, and I will say community leaders uh, from, from Minneapolis and Poland and other cities that will be visited by the mechanism will agree that that doesn't mean that it was a loss. Rather, it was a conversation starter about one of, I think, the power, but also the shortcomings of using international human rights law to tackle racism, which is the definitions and the terms that are embedded in, this, in these tools and how whether going through the United Nations system or regional systems, in the case of the Americas, um, sometimes it can be shortcoming, it can be challenging, it can not be enough to actually tackle this. And I mentioned this because when you look into what the mechanism's mandate is, its mandate is to gather information, investigate, and conduct investigations around the facts around the globe. It's not just in the United States, even though they're doing a contribution here, which is a very historic development, but it's to gather information across the world and analyze that information and present recommendations to governments on how to tackle racism and law enforcement against people of African descent. That has, in my opinion, an extremely, extremely, you know, incredible potential of strengthening the international human rights law standards around systemic racism. When we look into what's available for us advocates, human rights lawyers and activists using these tools to tackle these issues, at the UN level, even though the prohibition, the prohibition of racial discrimination is a just cogent norm, meaning that all states, regardless of whether they have you know, ratified the treaty or not, they are bound by this norm 
and therefore they must comply with this mandate, which is in this case to protect individuals and peoples from enduring racial discrimination. And if they don't, then they are found in breach of an international obligation, right? So it's not just a prohibition of Jews cogens, but if we wanted to get even more technical, it definitely is embedded in a UN treaty that is virtually ratified by most states across the globe, right? And the same obligation is embedded in, in the sense that states must take positive steps, not just respect, but also fulfill a life for everybody so that especially people in this case, that we're talking about people of African descent, um, can live a life free from violence rooted in racial discrimination, right? However, when we look at the definition of it, and this is where I think that the mechanism has an opportunity to use this contribution and others to push forward for stronger standards, is that at least from the Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the, the, the treaty definition itself at the UN level, so these binding tools, the definition of racial discrimination implies that there must be an act that there must be an intention behind it rooted in a racial reasoning for it, and that there must be a victim, right? But in my opinion, it, it misses the possibility of claiming the very existence of systemic racism, the very existence of practices, institutions, beliefs, norms, even if there are social or cultural norms, the very existence of that as a violation of international human rights law. The very fact that states are not necessarily taking positive steps, steps to tackle that cannot necessarily be found under UN um, international human rights law standards as a violation of, of an obligation. And that means that you gotta necessarily find a victim and that means that, as Salima was pointing out, oftentimes you have to rely as an advocate on a case that can be very specific and have its own particular elements to it to then push forward the argument, well, actually, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Racism doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen only between individuals or communities. It happens because we, allow it to happen because of colonialism, transatlantic uh, slavery, and other elements of our histories in our different countries that contribute to this, right, still today, even though there's so many you know, data and information pointing out to the differentiated experiences of people of African descent across the board, right? So I just think I wanted to just mention this um, just to because I think we will have a really good exchange. I'm really looking forward to it. But maybe just to close this part by saying that the fact that the mechanism is coming to, to Minnesota, I see it as a strong win from the leaders of this community that have been sustaining grassroots, transnational work for decades. And the fact that they're coming here not only speaks to the nature of um, the manifestations of racism in Minnesota when it comes to law enforcement, but it also speaks to their resilience and their bravery. And it shouldn't be seen as a one-off event. I, I hope and I wish to invite you all to see it as an opportunity for all of us to support them in making sure that this is a historical moment in making sure that the state eliminate systemic racism as an example for others in the country and in other parts of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. So it's a great privilege for me um, to in introduce Judge Lajun Thomas-Lang. Um, she's one of our most distinguished graduates. She served as the fourth Judicial District Court Judge for the state of Minnesota. She's now retired. And um, she's an honorary counsel of South Africa and Minnesota and the president of the International Leadership Institute. I think over many years, she was also David's friend. And I, I remember many days of serving on committees, choosing students to go and do fellowships. It was my, one of my earliest introductions to the work of the Human Rights Center with Judge Lang. She has served, I think, many critical, uh, as a leader in many critical organizations and associations in our state, nationally. And I'm just going to name a few of them, but it will give you a sense of the breadth and reach of her work and her influence and her tireless uh, advocacy. The Roy Wilkins Center for Human Relations and Social Justice at the Humphrey School over the street, um, the Minnesota Association of Black Lawyers, and the Minnesota Supreme Court Racial Bias Task Force. Um, she's a graduate of the class of 98, or 78. I was giving you a 20 extra years there, Judge. Um, and 
above all else, she's, uh, as well as her work as a judge, she's been an internationally recognized expert in human rights and the rule of law, particularly in developing nations. Um, she's worked on issues of election fairness, domestic violence, racial inequality, um, and access to justice. So I'm going to turn it over to Judge um, Lajun Lang. She's going to really share her insights into the complexity, the length, the breadth of the ways in which she's taught about this issues, these issues over time and that stem issues of systemic racism, but decolonization, as well as the hope that maybe we can do better um, in the future. So over to you, Judge. Thank you very much for that introduction. And it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. It was also a pleasure to attend the university and to meet Professor Weisbrot and get his guidance about the importance of the UN Human Rights Mechanism as a member of civil society and how to uh, address it. So one of the conversations that we had from Professor Weisbrot over time is that institutions will not do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. They will only do what they're forced to do. And we have to, as civil society, hold the UN accountable, hold other levels of government accountable. And with the, with the technology involved in the George Floyd murder case, where four police officers were convicted with worldwide television and videotapes showing their crimes, we're in a unique position to press for accountability because we have attracted the attention of the world. We share the same set of facts. It's not uniquely known in Minnesota what happened. The world knows what happened in the case. So we're not having to re-educate each person. We have to credit our local officials for listening to those of us who said all officers on the scene must be prosecuted. That was key in terms of changing the narrative from a bad apple narrative to a practice and coordinated failure to respect the rights of uh, George Floyd on that day. There's an additional part of that narrative that you want to research and confirm. And that is when uh, Chauvin was taken to the Ramsey County Jail, all black employees were removed from the floor that he was assigned to at the jail. They later sued in federal court for the discrimination that they faced. But the person who made that decision at the Ramsey County Jail still remains in his position. So there was another layer of uh, white supremacy in addition to what happened on the street. I have attended uh, two of the UN reports at the Human Rights Council for the United States. The reports are given by a member of the Justice Department representing the United States, and the reports of the United States for how they are view themselves doing with racial issues are very scripted. So the UN will have these special investigators go around, gather information, have really solid data in terms of critiquing the United States, but the consistent over time, response of the United States through the Justice Department has been that our local laws, our local and national courts and mechanisms are sufficient to address uh, racial inequality and discrimination. And we know with this particular unique moment with the George Floyd case, that Congress was unable to pass laws in response to what happened. The Minnesota legislature was unable to pass laws to respond to the gaps in terms of accountability. So we have to keep in mind that the institutions that are represented that can handle and protect human rights of persons of African descent 
have not been able to uh, reform themselves through the legislative process. So we have to keep our eye on that failure as well as what we're expecting the UN to do because the UN will only act and direct member states to do something. So we have, as uh, has been stated, one of the members, uh, permanent members of the Security Council before the UN on its practices. And we have some other members of the Security Council that we're at odds with right now. So it's gonna be a bruising examination, a bruising examination. But for us in Minnesota, we should understand that this George Floyd case is the most important human rights case for African descendant people since Dred Scott. And what happened with Dred Scott is that that case continually gets obscured where many young people do not know that Dred Scott was enslaved at the very Fort Snelling that's by the airport that everybody drives past. So it's not only the here and now, and looking at how the Minneapolis Police Department rebuffed the assistance of first responders, rebuffed the assistance of citizens who uh, calmly asked uh, to spare George Floyd's life. We had every system fail with regard to uh, emergency response, protection of human rights, protection of life and property from fires. So we had a massive failure uh, of all the systems that were designed to protect us in this situation. So we're hoping that through your advocacy, uh, we, I worked with Professor Rose Brewer we sent letters uh, to uh, request uh, the UN special inquiry from uh, Minnesota along with many, many Minnesota-based organizations. So being able to have that rapid response, uh, messaging that was emphasizing the same points, and also looking at the collective behavior rather than isolating the conduct as a one actor who was not properly disciplined, I think has gotten us to this point where we're in an excellent position to uh, press for uh, the accountability and the changes which have been denied for so long. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. So it's now my pleasure to introduce Tamara Hill. She's the policy director at the Minnesota Justice Research Center and a graduate of the university, a graduate of our human rights master's program at the Humphrey School. And Tamara is a really experienced human rights advocate and she's worked in several states and several countries. And her, her interests and her work have spanned education, public policy, social insurance, waiver programs, legislation, race and gender issues, including violence and human security concerns. And um, she's recognized very much here in the Twin Cities, especially for her commitment to coalition building and designing policy advocacy informed by and connected to direct services and community organizing to create lasting transformations. And so Shamir is gonna help us um, think about this situation and the opportunity that the, both the mechanism and the upcoming visit have in the context of ongoing reforms and ongoing debates in the state of Minnesota. So over to you, Tamara. Yeah, thank you. And thanks everybody. I'm glad to share some time with you today and hopefully can give a, a history of uh, maybe about the UN, maybe about Minnesota and see where we can go from there. So um, I wanted to start today by highlighting something that I found in uh, my human rights work, which is that often people don't realize that black Americans have always been involved in advocacy at the UN. It's not new for us, it's true to us. Um, and I promise you, wherever there are black people, there has always been advocacy. And so black Americans were um, present at the start and the founding of the United Nations. And I'll highlight a couple of the most important things that have happened for black Americans at the UN since the 1940s. Um, in 1947, W.E.B. Du Bois and the NAACP submitted the first uh, statement that they attempted to get heard um, at the UN. It was called an appeal to the world. 
Um, and this was a, an appeal that talked about the lack of human rights and civil rights that black Americans had, um, begging the UN to, to intervene and to, to hear about those issues. Um, this was actually refused by Eleanor Roosevelt. She was afraid that if the statement got taken to the UN, it would hurt the US's um, political standing and our ability to negotiate with other countries because she knew how horrendous it, it was. And she was afraid that um, in turn she'd have to defend um, the choices and actions of the US government against black and brown people in the US. In 1951, uh, Paul Robeson, who is a civil rights icon in his time, um, wrote a statement called We Charge Genocide, which is about um, anti-lynching movements and human rights movements during Jim Crow for black Americans. Um, and then in 2014, which I think is most um, connected to what we're talking about today, uh, Michael Brown Sr. and um, Leslie McSpadden, who are the parents of uh, Michael Brown from Ferguson, Missouri, went to the UN um, Convention of Torture and deemed that excessive force by the police should be considered torture. And so from the start of the UN up through uh, the 2000s and to now, black Americans have been at the UN advocating for whatever the human rights violation of the time was. So whether that's um, not having the right to vote, not being seen as a person, um, or having personhood, fighting against lynching, and right now police brutality and excessive incarceration. Um, these voices have always been there, and historically these voices have not been heard or, um, or helped when we've gone to the UN and communities have advocated for it. So I just wanna highlight something that I think is important and has been said before. This mechanism is not a solution. Um, it's a tool, and it's a tool in a few different ways. And for me, coming from community organizing and doing policy work that's led and guided by community members, the most important tool, um, the most important way I think this serves as a tool is to finally give validation and a place for community members, survivors, and advocates to share their stories and to finally be heard on the international, um, on the international stage. Um, for decades, our black and brown communities have have been begging for a chance to go to the UN and like have people on the global scale care about these issues. And this will be one of the first times where um, that effort has been put in specifically on the police brutality um, and incarceration front. So I think that's really exciting. Um, I know through work with the law school that we have many community advocates, but most importantly, survivors and um, survivors who have experienced this violence and also family members of those who were stolen by this violence who will be talking to the UN. Um, these are also the people who have been at the forefront at the Minnesota legislature for the past 20 years begging for um, these reforms or transformational systems. So I think um, considering the limited amount of time we've had, uh, and special thanks to you, like we've done a really good job of bringing together different groups of people to share stories. So. Um, some of the organizations that I think are really important to note about, and I wanna give space for them today. Um, these are organizations that have been doing this work in Minnesota for decades, uh, just like we've always been at the UN. As long as there have been black people in Minnesota, advocacy has been happening there too. Um, and so we have organizations that work in uh, providing like mental health or just like compassionate services uh, to family members or survivors. Uh, we have organizations that reopen investigations um, and help families as they're navigating the consequences of having a loved one murdered by police. Um, and then we have more um, nonprofit level organizations that work at the Capitol that do kind of advocacy. And I'm just gonna highlight a few of those because I think that it's really important for you to look at these organizations and the great work that they do, not just in the Twin Cities, uh, but across Minnesota. Um, these are organizations where if you have time to volunteer, to donate money or you know do whatever you wanna do, these are the people on the ground helping family members. These are the people at the Capitol passing legislation that's reforming our system in Minnesota, um, including things like Restore the Vote, um, which reenfranchises a large population of Minnesotans to, to vote in the upcoming election. That's 55,000 people. Um, these are organizations that participated in that. 
So um, I'll use mine first. I used to work at the Center for Victims of Torture, and I brought in CBT to work on this issue. Um, so we've been doing work at the Capitol and then the Minnesota Justice Research Center, where I currently work now. Um, in addition, you have Communities United Against Police Brutality, Families Supporting Families Against Police Violence, the Minnesota ACLU, um, NAACP, Minnesota 8, Jewish Community Action, Isaiah, Voices for Racial Justice, Black Visions, and uh, Violence-Free Minnesota are just a few. Um, and I'd like to note that Minnesota um, has a long history of police brutality and violence, um, and as well as the overuse of incarceration and carceral systems. Um, I'd like to remind people that though we're talking about policing a lot, law enforcement doesn't begin and end with police. Law enforcement includes school resource officers, it includes probation officers, correction officers, and we have so much work to do in all of those capacities in this country, but particularly in Minnesota. Um, there's a long-standing history of correctional officers sexually assaulting uh, women inmates in Shakopee Prison. That's ongoing, and to the judge's point, like a lot of those correctional officers are still working at those prisons. Um, they might get like slaps on the wrist or you know slightly disciplined, but that's something that we need to work on. Um, Minnesota is one of the lowest for incarceration in the state, but we put people on probation for 30 plus years sometimes. So that's just a continuation, right, of, of those sentences. Um, and people are starting to recognize that Minnesota is a place that has huge disparities, uh, but is also a place where work is happening to change that. And so we have organizations and people from outside of the state that are looking to us on, the, uh, on these issues. So academics at NYU and Columbia, um, nonprofit organizations that are libertarian or conservative inside and outside of the state um, are looking to us too and um, are working on these issues. And then um, organizations that are more well known like the Sentencing Project and the Innocence Project work on these issues in Minnesota. And so um, I think what I, I'd like to just make us focus on, uh, if you don't take anything else from here today, is that um, these issues are happening, whether or not they're names that you know. For every one name you know, there's probably 10, 20 more. In the past 20 years, we've had hundreds of people murdered by police in Minnesota. Extra people are murdered while they're incarcerated. And as a nation, over 1,000 people are murdered by police in the United States every year. Every year, we lose over 1,000 people. We live in a, a state where a police state where there's not enough accountability, and we know that these reforms aren't, there's something along the way, but you know they're not enough. We have a lot of work to do. So um, lastly, I'll just go over some of the legislation that's been happening in the state of Minnesota over the past um, few years, but particularly the past two years of I, as I've been a lobbyist on criminal legal system reform and public safety in the state. Um, I think what's exciting is that uh, us as human rights leaders or community organizers, or you know, just as people, we're in this new phase where we're starting to understand even more the complex and intricate relationship between um, oppression, disempowerment, and systems, and how intersecting identities and um, state violence all intersect together um, and work to disenfranchise us. And so these are some pieces of legislation that, um, Again, they're not gonna be solutions, but they're tools. And so if you wanna work on um, supporting those or reading more into them or study them, whatever your choices, these could be of use. So um, ending no-knock warrants, which if that had been enacted, Amir Locke would still be alive. Um, ending qualified immunity, uh, changing body camera requirements or access. Um, we passed Restore the Vote, so that's really exciting. Um, we've also changed rules and regulations for police officers in the whole state of Minnesota, which includes guidelines around excessive force, duty to report, and uh, chemical irritants. So um, please keep up to date with the Minnesota Post Board to hold our officers accountable to how they police our communities. Um, solitary confinement, ending that and ending strip searches, juvenile justice, and as well as uh, stopping the use of chemical irritants. A lot of these things which have been determined by the UN to be violation of rights, to be violations of warfare, but yet uh, they continue to be used on, on our neighbors and maybe even some of you in, in the audience. So um, I hope that gives a good like overview of 
where the UN's at when it comes to black Americans and where we're at in Minnesota, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. So thanks to uh, all three of our speakers. We have just a couple of minutes left, and I was going to turn to each of them just to reflect. You've all heard each other speak, and maybe to reflect on the questions, two, maybe two intersecting questions. One is, um, are we placing too much faith in the UN? And maybe that question is a question to ask as we're watching a war unfold in Ukraine and we can't stop that. And there's enormous expectation that can be built around this mechanism. So I'd ask you all to reflect on whether we, whether we can expect the UN to do the work and um, but also to reflect on what the opportunity is, which I think to, to use Tamara's voice, just, it's a it's a tool, not a solution. And so, with that phrase in mind, um, think past what the mechanism allows. So maybe we'll um, we'll start at the beginning, Alina. Yeah, I think. Um that's a very valid question that I think I ask myself just in general as I wake up and I have decided this path of <laughs> practicing human rights law. Like, is it even a, what's the point of life? <laughs> well, but, but joke aside, I do think that it will be on the on one hand naive to expect, as you were saying, Tamira, that this will be the solution of all our issues. But I do think, though, that it will also be lost if we don't notice the opportunity, as I was saying earlier, of seeing not just the visit of this mechanism, but just in general engaging with UN procedures and, and bodies around this issue. And also looking into our own region, you know, and remembering that the US is part of a continent called the Americas that also has its own regional um, institutions and mechanisms despite the relationship between the three. But it has the opportunity to strengthen the standards, the standards that took us decades to build and that clearly were rooted on the work of uh, people of African descent and other activists around tackling racism. The fact that we have these standards today means that we can keep pushing them forward. And that's, that's what this is all about, at least for me. It's all about making sure that we use the tools that are available. If they're not available, make them happen, as the advocates made this mechanism happen, and then use it to keep pushing for what we want to see out there, and hopefully in a couple of years, in a decade, in our lifetimes, we'll be able to see that change. It's not for us, for those that are coming after us, right? Judge. Well, I believe in the UN. I do too. And, uh, you know, <laughs> going back to Ralph Bunch, <laughs> who didn't get all the credit, but was right there helping to make things happen and stepping up in the Middle East when his colleagues were getting assassinated and standing for the right thing as long as it took. I worked with the, uh, I went as a member, kind of a solo trip, when Kenya was in an election crisis. And we were being told that Kenya would go the way of Rwanda in one week if something didn't happen. And the one opponent for president said the election had been stolen and that the ballots had been uh, altered and they were asking the global community to come in. Our US Congress was in recess, but we went into uh, the offices of senior congressional members who had senior staff who'd seen these kind of things happen and were dedicated to having the U.S. intervene. But the U.S. could not intervene in Kenya directly. It had to go through a mechanism. And the mechanism was the African Union. And what they said to me is, as I have a, a small NGO called the International Leadership Institute. We can puff ourselves up like a giant when we need to, but uh, we uh, don't have an army, and we have to work uh, by consensus and uh, accountability. But we went to the Africa desk at the uh, State Department, and we're told that Kenya had to stop the violence for the international community to intervene. And we went to the African Union representative to the United States, 
and she said she would assist if we could get uh, to the opposing uh, party who was denied the presidency and see if we could get them to file a petition at the African Union for the heads of state to intervene. Well, to make a long story short, uh, we were I traveled alone to Kenya in the middle of the violence, met with uh, Raleigh Odinga, who was the uh, person who was denied the presidency. And he petitioned the African Union to intervene at the heads of state meeting. The African Union heads of state voted to support that. And within hours, Ban Ki-moon of the United Nations had given an actual mandate to Kofi Annan to actually sit down with Kibaki and Odinga. And they worked out a coalition government. Uh, people, many of the people that I was working with weren't happy. They said, Lejeune, why didn't you get us a recount? I said, I couldn't get a recount in Bush v. Gore for our own country. <laughs> so a coalition government is what you're going to have to live with and, and live to see another day. But uh, if it were not for the ability of the UN to be able to turn things around and give people hope and avoid that state of tyranny which the UN was created to avoid, uh, we would not be here talking today. Yeah. Tamara. Yeah, um, I might end up saying something more controversial than the other two, so sorry about that. Um, I, I think that for me, I believe in all of my heart that the systems, any organization or any kind of system that's played a hand in the oppression of my people is never going to be what frees my people. It is not our key to liberation. Um, that being said, I am participating in the work of the UN for this mechanism because um, I think it's the first step. Um, I've spent some time um, abroad and traveled to a few different countries and Throughout my like experiences, I met a lot of people who didn't even know that Americans could be black um, and had a lot of people who were like, oh, you don't have to lie about being African. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. I'm like, well, yes, it is nothing to be embarrassed about, but I'm actually an African-American and we have like a whole history that, you know, um, is incredibly valuable and we've participated in everything that the world has. Like we were the key to industrialization, the key to development in this country. Um, and so I think like there's a lot of privilege that comes with being an American, especially when you travel abroad, but from the experience of a black American, there's also a level of invisibility. And when people find out you are American, it's a lot of like, oh, well, what do you have to be worried about or complain about? You're an American. Nothing could possibly be wrong. Um, because often people in other countries don't get the full coverage of what's actually happening here. Um, and being able to go to the UN and talk about these issues in front of a bunch of different countries um, in a way that's televised, in a way that's talked about, in a way where there will be a, a, a report that's accessible is the first step. Um, the global community can't be interested in what's happening to us or advocate um, with us if they don't know that we're hurting, um, if they don't know that it's a huge problem. And, you know, I from faces in the crowd, when I was saying statistics or issues we have in Minnesota, I saw I was saying things that people in this room didn't even know. And so if you live in this state and you live in this country and you don't know how bad the problem is, how are people in the other nations supposed to know? And how are they supposed to care, right? So for me, it's, it's that first step. I don't do this because I don't even think in my lifetime I will see the benefits of this, but it's my hope that, you know, after I'm gone, another like black advocate will sit at a table like this and highlight black people's presence at the UN and we will be on that timeline to what has ended with like a huge transformation for black people around the world. Powerful words. I'm reminded of Andre Lourdes. We will not dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. 
but sometimes we have to use them to get to where we want to go. So with that, it's my great pleasure to close out this event. I do want to thank some people at the Human Rights Center. The executive director, Amanda Lyons, is right up there at the back. Um, Abby Nelson uh, and Megan Mannion, all of whom have been central to getting us here. I think we also just, I want to acknowledge that um, our, uh, our, our, uh, our moderator, do you want to stand up? <laughs> our moderator who um, was to be uh, moderating had a court at an important court. And, and Absi, who is Assistant Ramsey uh, co uh, County Attorney, um, uh, had to be where he's supposed to be as a University of Minnesota trained lawyer, the first Somali-American lawyer to a, a receive a JD here at the law school. So thank you for doing the work that you do, and uh, thanks for getting here at the very end. Thank you very much, Abdi. <laughs> Please stay with us. It's Human Rights Day. There's lots more to come. It's going to be an amazing couple of hours as we think forward and backwards simultaneously, and we celebrate human rights and the legacy of uh, Professor David Weisbrot here at the law school. Thank you all for coming. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.